Hello, hello, welcome to the Drop the Stamp podcast. The pod recently celebrated its first birthday on the 27th of May, which came with a special surprise, our official website launch that you can check by clicking on the link in the bio. And what better way is to start this new year with an episode in which we're going to explore the intersection of scientific and creative processes, such as writing. Let's welcome Ellis Kai, a published author of the novel Crowned, Legend of the Three Bears. Ellis has been nationally recognized multiple times by the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards, including a 2020 American Voice Medal. She also got published by the Best Teen Writing of 2019, which is the nation's longest-running and most prestigious recognition program for creative teens. The ISAF gang is also growing since Alice is both an ISAF 19 and 20 qualified finalist as she worked on fabrication optimization of nanostructures for potential sensor applications and we're gonna see how chameleons and nanostructures can come into the same picture. She also co-founded a unique educational platform, Buzz Online. Alice is passionate about storytelling and research and I'm gonna give her that virtual mic now. Hello, Alice. Welcome to the podcast. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm really honored to be here today and happy birthday to Drop the Stem. It's my pleasure to have you on and thank you. This year has gone by so fast and I'm so happy to introduce such talented people as yourself because you are invested in many fields and we've had or we've explored the connection between music and science, but never writing. It's pretty exciting. Yes, it is. We hit it off by dating back to the age of six, which actually marks the time you started writing. So I'm interested, mm -hmm. why did you first start creating stories? Well, I think that's a difficult question because a lot of different factors play into why someone first starts writing um, seriously. Uh, first of all, I think that, you know, everyone writes, right? Like, whoever you are, you've written something. But the reason that I started writing uh, full-blown stories, like novel-length stories, was because I listened to audiobooks on the car when I was young, and I would also record my own audiobooks of classics like Alice in Wonderland and Aesop's Fables and Treasure Island. And so these audiobooks inspired me to create my own novels. And um, in this process of recording audiobooks, I would have to read and reread over and over again. And so I got really familiar with the way that words worked and also story structures. That is really interesting. Now, no pun intended with Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mentioned in the first place. And it's really interesting because as you were listening to the stories, just as you mentioned, it became a natural process for you to structure words in a way that creates an exciting story. You've not only constructed sentences, but an entire book, because in ninth grade, your first novel was published. Could you expand on your process of creating Crowned, the legend of the three bears? Yeah, it was actually a very long process. Um, it started back in 2014. I think I was around 11 at the time. 
but I went to this writing camp at my local university and I wrote a very long short story there. You could almost call it a novella. Um, and it was kind of had a classic premise. A king passes away. And the question is, you know, who's going to inherit the throne? But the twist to this story is that the characters are actually bears. Um, and it's a magical kingdom. And there are some larger and darker powers at play behind the scenes. So they sort of take advantage of the fact that there's this family quarrel and they come in and there's this struggle between good and evil as well. I don't want to give away too much, uh, but the princes eventually go on their own quests to other animal kingdoms. And you could think of it as a coming of age story, but in a family setting um, where the brothers not only discover who they are themselves, but also you know, what makes their relationships with their brothers. They sort of uh, discover their bromance with each other through the process of fighting. Um, and in terms of the editing process, you know, I had to rewrite it many, many times over the years. In 2017, I signed the contract with a local publishing company for this book. Um, but before then, I think I'd rewritten it at least six or seven times. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a grueling process, but like each time you see the improvements that you're making, and you, you know that you're headed in the right direction, so it's definitely worth it. I went to a local writer's group to get critique for it, and I would read chapters every week. And so that's where I met the publisher, the editor for the publisher that eventually picked me up. And after that, the publishing process, I think, took two years, more than two years. There was book design, there was marketing, there was a lot of, like, grammar, editing, and finalizing all of that stuff. I actually pitched into the book design with my ideas as well, so that was pretty cool. Yes, the book cover looks fascinating. And I gotta tell that the fruit of your dedicated labor really was worth it, because just as I was reading the premise of the story, I was intrigued because the history of the three bears, the protagonist, inherited this precious legacy. And as mm -hmm. I could conduct, the central question is based on whether their fleshly emotions are going to come in the way of uniting the kingdom and protecting it yeah. against external yeah. forces. Is that right? Yes, of course. And I think that's a big question in a lot of stories as well. And it becomes increasingly relevant in the modern day um, because we have all sorts of temptations and distractions and polarization in society. Absolutely. It's uh, so essential that you've pinpointed that because even though I didn't know the uh, full story and no spoilers allowed here, of course, <laughs> uh, but it seems that it beautifully models strength in unity despite our differences. Which is very important uh, given the current worldly circumstances. Absolutely. And the news channels are just, you know, full of heartbreaking stories. And we yeah. can see that if we date back to historical events, we see that almost every nation's fall started from within the borders, like an mm -hmm. internal imbalance. And we should not mm -hmm. allow that within families or, you know, within nations. Kudos to you for having a book published because it's Thank quite you. a tiring process. Thank you. Yes, it is. <laughs> 
And besides that, what else have you written or are you working on? Writing's been at the center of my life for as long as I can remember. Um, I used to write all the time in elementary school and junior high. It was like, you know, come home from school and write and then eat and write and go to bed and wake up and write. Um, and I worked on quite a few novels over the years. I think I've written five or so other novels. Of course, they're not like, you know, very fleshed out, uh, but... I actually picked one of them back up last December because I had some time after I tore my ACL. <laughs> um, this one's about a little girl who has to save the world from this powerful disease that's created by pollution and technological failures. And she has to do it through working with other animal species. And, you know, it's a very timely piece. Even though I started it back in 2013, um, and I'm surprised that like the things young me came up with back then have become 10 times more relevant in media today. But I, I think in 2020, we see this confluence of climate protests and COVID-19 and hostility between different groups of people. And so this novel felt timely and it felt like a calling. Other than that, I've worked on a couple of short pieces throughout the years. I'm primarily a novel writer, but I think that my best short works deal with my double identities. So like I'm Asian and American. And when I was younger, I really struggled with reconciling that double identity and dealing with a sense of unbelonging to both cultures. Um, and beyond that, my double identity as a writer and a researcher, which was, it was like a complicated and conflict-filled journey of I guess, me uncovering the beauty of the interconnections between STEM and humanities. So I've written extensively on double identities. If you will get your first book published, please let me know because I'd be really <laughs> interested to dig deep into that. And I think many of the listeners are now, so we're going to be waiting for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and on the second one, it's so interesting that you brought it up because... We recently had a show on Netflix um, about the girl who is dealing with the double identity issue. She is American Indian and or mm -hmm. well, like US Yeah, never have I ever. That's right. Could you see some correlations between what you've explored and the show or what tips would you give to your younger self who is dealing with these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that... You know, Never Have I Ever is, is a great show. I think that it's definitely tailored toward a younger audience and it has some of those, I guess, pop culture elements in it. So I wouldn't say it's entirely reflective of my experience as an Asian American, but I can definitely um, pinpoint some areas where it is reflective. I don't remember the show very well because I sort of, you know, skimmed through it, but I think that like idolizing a Western person romantically was a part of my double identity. I actually write about this in my piece, Bowl of Noodles, but I had this picture that I guess I'd gotten from media um, of this like golden haired boy and, you know, perfect blue eyes, whatever it was. It was this Western standard of beauty, and I idolized that because that's what I had been exposed to in media and also because of a little bit of unacceptance of my own culture. And so I can see that as a point 
of reflection, as well as I don't remember if there was anything related to food in there, but my food definitely stunk when I was in elementary school. Um, and I got teased a lot about that. Um, and my parents were strict, different from other parents, felt excluded often, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's what I see that's represented in a lot of uh, TV shows that cover these sorts of double identities. With regards to the other part of your question about advice to my younger self, or maybe other young kids struggling with this, um, this is a hard one because some things, you know, some things you have to learn through difficulties, through experience. And I would argue that um, I've actually come to appreciate my double identity even more because of the fact that I struggled with it so much and it caused me a lot of pain when I was younger. I don't think I would quite appreciate it as much if I was just um, treated normally or if I had just thought of it as being normal. And so on the one hand, I think it's valuable for kids to go through that experience and I don't regret it for myself at all. Uh, but on the other hand, I'd say that like, you know, nothing is the end of the world as it might seem to, to very young people, including myself right now. Um, I just have to keep on reminding myself that when I look back on this from a storytelling perspective, it's going to be this beautiful tale of, of life, I guess. And thank you for your level of vulnerability, because as you shared, that the pain you've experienced is transformed into a purposeful message that I believe a lot of people who may be listening to this podcast might resonate with. Especially during puberty, we we examine ourselves, we, we question a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. and that yeah. combined with external stimuli, let's say that, which might result in negative experiences, really mm -hmm. molds us in, into the person who, who, into the people who are becoming eventually. Yeah, absolutely. About the, the stereotypical images is so interesting on the surfer guy's <laughs> note. When we had our Chinese teacher in our high school, she was telling about, you know, the Chinese ideal about having white porcelain skin and cherry lips. And she was mm -hmm. from the South and um, she had darker skin color and, you know, not the ideal beauty in Asian Chinese history. And she was also yeah. telling about the conflict she experienced because there's still the stigma that they have to whiten their skin. And what we see in Europe is the complete opposite. We want to be tanned as yeah. much as possible. <laughs> Sometimes we just want what we can't be. Yeah. I really appreciate that you share that you have to, you know, grow into it and, and appreciate it, even if it means facing difficulties. One thing I would like to touch on that writers can receive their inspiration from various sources, but in the creative process, where do you get your inspiration from? Well, that's another difficult question. Like you said, it comes from a lot of different places, often all at the same time. And sometimes it's a subconscious process. And sometimes we also forget where our inspiration came from after the process happens. Um, I would say that I get a lot of my inspiration from what's happening in real life. But I also get a lot of inspiration from the concepts that I'm learning academically. And, and I'll go into a little bit more depth on that. So, for example, the novel that I'm working on right now about... Uh, disease and, and pollution, 
I think that if I had to pinpoint a source of inspiration for that, it would probably be um, my visits to China as a young kid, because I would see a lot of pollution back there. And, you know, those those visits were very hot and it was very smelly and dirty in some of the places that I visited. And so that made an impression on me. And I wanted to write about that pollution and why we should you know, help get rid of that pollution. Of course, the issue is a lot more complicated in retrospect, um, which is why I'm adapting the novel to uh, reflect some of the current issues that we're facing and reflect the multifaceted perspectives and approaches to solving these problems. And then on the other hand, I'm also going to make light a huge part of this novel. It was actually originally called The Magical Light, uh, but the reason I'm making light a big part of it is because my research deals with um, structural color and the way that light interacts with matter. And so in this novel, I'm going to apply those concepts of light like polarization you know maybe polarization of people isn't necessarily that they're very far apart distance wise but rather that they are on a different plane um, that they can't think in the same way or interference you know light goes into structures and it comes out as a different color by constructive and destructive interference and that can be analogous to the way that people go into complex situations and that sort of shapes who they become. Um, and so I like to actively look for those scientific concepts that I can apply and oftentimes observations and things that I learn contribute to the inspiration for, for my writing. I'm really loving those delicate um, interconnections between the two. They touch on such relevant issues, but you are putting them in a setting that is both artistic and inspirational, but still teaches you science. So, so very mm -hmm. unique field that you're tapping into. Yeah, I definitely love the intersection. Um, I'd argue more than I love either writing or science. I, I love the interconnections even more. You go with both options. <laughs> but you've mentioned science and now it would be great to explore that aspect a little bit more you're invested mm -hmm. in artistic outlets but you're also passionate about research and your mm -hmm. ISAF 19 project brings together two seemingly distinct concepts chameleons and nanostructures could you tell me more about it yeah so when you think of nanostructures i think people think you know man-made and we th when you think of chameleons, we think nature, but actually a lot of man-made phenomenon are uh, inspired by nature, right? Like you have bio-inspired materials, and that's exactly what my project was about. It was about um, mimicking the natures, in, or not the natures, the nanostructures in chameleons. Um, they have these guanine nanocrystals in their skin that can reflect light in a certain way to create structural color. And when you stretch the spacing between those nanostructures, it changes the color of what's reflected. Um, and so I wanted to mimic this, and I created these flexible nanostructures, nanopillars, that I could stretch and the color would change when I stretched it. There's no color to the material itself, 
because these are very tiny structures, it's, it's, um, it interacts with the wavelengths of the light itself. That's really interesting. So could you expand more on the methodology you followed? What kind of parameters uh, did you have to measure to, ex to get the data you eventually wanted? For last year's project, it was mostly a fabrication development uh, project. But the data that I extracted was uh, primarily um, physical data. So what were, what were the dimensions of the structure that I was making? Because on such a small scale, it's difficult to know whether or not what you're fabricating is precise and what you designed it to be, right? So what I did was I used a 3D laser scanning microscope to extract a surface height map of the nanostructured substrate. Um, so I guess it sort of outlines what the pillars look like in three dimensions. Um, to process this data, though, I had to develop my own MATLAB processing, a MATLAB data processing program, because I fabricated thousands of these uh, pillars, which are around one micron in height and diameter. And so in this program, what it does is it first exports the 3D laser scanning microscope data into an accessible um, CSV format or Excel format. And then I threshold it. So I crop it right at the base of those pillars. So all I'm left with is the data for the pillars themselves. And I analyze a little histogram of that and figure out the heights and the diameters of these pillars. In terms of the parameters that I adjusted in the experiment itself, I used this system called two-photon lithography, which is essentially where you um, have, I guess, two, two photons that come together in a point in space, and it can cure a photoresist. So it can harden a photoresist at a certain point in space. And you move that laser around to create a 3D structure. And after that, you wash the rest of the photoresist away so that you're left with whatever you designed. The parameters that I adjusted on this were um, the laser power and also the time that the laser was exposed for and also the Z offset, which is just an alignment issue with the substrate. So in order to analyze the effects of those parameters, I used JUMP, which is a statistical modeling program, and I fitted a predictive model to that. So it was like this, um, equation that had all three of those variables and the interactions with those variables. It's like when it comes to DNA that not all sequences are expressed and you had to pinpoint from the hundreds of surface height maps that you created what data is necessary for your project and what yeah. relationships you're able to establish within that chaotic system. Yeah, that's a great comparison, um, definitely. And on the application part, I wonder, and perhaps those who are not invested in this field might wonder, where are colorimetric strain sensors implemented in real life? So one of the places you can implement this is to detect eye disease, um, because some eye diseases can change the curvature of your eye. And so if you have um, a contact lens that you can put in and it changes color depending on the curvature. Maybe you can detect early stage eye diseases. But also any sort of 
system in the body that is very sensitive to small-scale strain. And I'm sure there are a lot of uh, biological systems that you can pinpoint with that. Or if you're looking at an optical tunable device or a micro device that you need um, to be sensitive to small-scale strain. But I would say that my research is a very long way away from the application phase, simply because my stuff was mostly process development and also, you know, look at the fundamental factors behind what's happening. Well, every research begins with fundamentals and you've provided a great deal of new information to this field. Just as you've expanded on, the application aspect is so wide because if there's a change in a property of the environment, if I conclude it well, mm -hmm. that will define the design of the particular colorimetric sensor. Yes, exactly. We mentioned ISAP, so I cannot leave this part. If you could create a mental ISAP highlight reel, which moments would you include? That's a good question. Let's see. Mental ISAP highlight reel. The dance is an obvious one. Oh yeah. Can't leave that out. The karaoke was so fun. I actually, um, a friend and I were practicing a song, but we never actually got to sing it to people, unfortunately. Um, I think it was like, a song by Adele, maybe it was Hello, or maybe it was a different song by her. We were kind of shy and we didn't want to go up and by the time we had like finished practicing, it was about to close. The baseball game was super fun, but not necessarily the game itself, more of the games that were like at the perimeter of the field, you know, inside of those hallways. I tried to dunk on the mascot um, and I accidentally like tore down the basketball goal and it fell and everything. It was, oh, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was embarrassing. We got that on camera. I guess conversations were a big part of it. I talked a lot to one of the teachers that uh, brought us there and we had some great conversations about religion and science. Also, um, a friend I met there, we were getting ice cream and talking about the existence of an objective reality. We thought maybe it's a Schrodinger's cat kind of thing where it simultaneously exists and doesn't exist. So those are probably the best moments. <laughs> it's so cool because, yeah, those conversations stick with you and you mm -hmm. meet so many cool people about science and religion. I'm interested to hear more about what you discussed, but in Hungary we are having a pretty big scientific event called Brain Bar for youngsters mm -hmm. and one of the pre-Taylor trailer videos expanded on that Newton actually wrote more books on religion than physics in general. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'll have to read some of his books on religion. What topics are you expanding on uh, in terms of religion? I think this was a while back, but what I can remember is that uh, we talked about, I guess, the origins of life in the universe as being difficult to explain without um, some sort of some sort of other power coming into play because life was created with all of these very specific, I guess, parameters, right? And for these parameters to exist, um, the, there's just a lot of debate over how we can explain the, the crazy phenomenon that is life 
the way our DNA is made up of, and we don't even know how even a plant cell functions in its full state. So yes, um, the intelligent design arguments, uh, a lot of points have valid arguments that I think that mm -hmm. scientists should be open to explore. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I think that, you know, um, there might be a misconception that believing in certain things is automatically excluding belief in other things. And it really just comes down to the details. And I do think every belief warrants consideration. Absolutely. Yes, because science gives us facts and all these fascinating information, but not really on moral values that also make us mm -hmm. as a human. Yeah. I'm really glad that this topic was brought up and uh, we could see how the intersection of religion or moral values with science can come into play. In terms of science, you also started a high school monthly newsletter. I'm really interested to hear what intersectional topics you cover in SciMac. This actually started because we have like literary magazines um, at our high school and at many high schools across the United States, but I, I've never seen a scientific magazine in high school. You know, obviously we have magazines like Nature and Scientific American, but something that's run by the students that displays passion for science, but also the communication of science, um, I felt was lacking. And so the topics that we cover in this is really up to the contributors. The students come up with all of this stuff. Like mostly what it is, is it's um, using creative outlets to express a passion for science. For example, we've had people create crossword puzzles um, about scientific facts and we've had people write science fiction you know I've actually created a little video of chemical fires burning different colors um, and I've thought about if I could maybe do some video processing and make that into a soundtrack that might be cool or record a song to it and I, I really just want to encourage people to express their passion for science um, through these creative ways because I think that also helps you generate more ideas on what you might want to research. What about unique ways of sublimation, of expressing their passions and really bringing science closer to others? And you're doing such an honorable work by implementing these scientific concepts and putting them into the social circulation. And I really like the soundtrack, so could you expand it a little bit more? So you've made the chemical reaction video and you've put it in a musical video system? I actually haven't done it, but I've thought about doing it. Fires, right? And they're in little petri dishes. It's burning salts um, and a classic experiment. But they have reflections on the table beneath them, so it sort of resembles a wave type thing. So I was thinking, you know, what if I turn this visual video into a soundtrack by by turning the waves into sounds, you know, sound waves. Um, it, I'm sure if I did it, it would not have any sort of musical taste. It'd probably be like static, but I thought it would be pretty interesting to do. But still a very intriguing idea. Yeah. You know, we think about 90s movies, you had 
distinct types of characters, the artsy, the popular, the ghost one. But mm -hmm. the nerdy one was also always displayed as a bit off, you know, in the suburbs. And mm -hmm. I think that over the years, with positive reinforcements, we are changing the narrative and the stereotypical mm -hmm. ideas associated with doing science. And we see that the Absolutely. ones who were considered nerds in the 90s are now successful CEOs and accomplished scientists. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I think that a premise of a lot of these stories, or at least you know, in the modern day, is that we have these popular kids who are also into things like maybe theater or science, things that are considered nerdy and only for outcasts. And I, I'd say that premise is kind of outdated um, because most kids in high school nowadays are, are two things or more than two things all at once. Um, and that's part of what makes people unique and what makes them good at what they do is they also have these other sources of inspiration and other mindsets working behind the scenes as well. It elevates their level of uniqueness and they are not trapped in this social box of, you know, defining them by very superficial characteristics. On, on that, you know, you said that theater um, is considered to be for outcasts. High school musical changed it. <laughs> a theater was for wildcats. <laughs> <laughs> so we've covered both right and left brain subjects. And I'm intrigued to hear what sort of interconnections you notice between the creative and the scientific processes. A lot. <laughs> this is actually probably going to be the foundation on which I plan on building my career uh, because I plan on going into creative AI, so a mixture of creativity and research. But in terms of interconnections, I have to say that first off, it depends on how you define the creative and scientific processes. It depends a lot on semantics, like where are the boundaries, you know, maybe they overlap more than we might think. And I think both are crucial to each other. Um, but I would say that first and foremost, both processes are driven by curiosity. The drive to create is, is sort of like, curiosity to see what you can create and how you can create it and how that thing that you create can go on to interact with the world. Um, writing is also as much an investigative process as it is a generative process. So a lot of my early years of writing uh, were useful to self-discovery because I would sort of figure out who I was and what I valued through the things that I wrote. And a lot of it was diary entries as well, so that makes sense. But even in creating stories, it's still an investigative process. You're exploring the world and generating things you might not have known to be there before. Um, and, and I guess you could also argue that science might be generative. You know, is, is mathematics a discovery? Or is it a creation? There's a debate around that question as well. Um, are we just creating constructs with which we can define the world? But um, science and writing both, I would say, are also answers to questions, ways to solve a problem. Um, in science, that's 
pretty straightforward, right? You're answering the question that you're asking in your research or in engineering, you're figuring out how to address a problem in the world. But in writing, it might be less intuitive why it's a problem-solving process. Specifically, I'd say you're trying to figure out how you can put all of these different elements together to maximize the effectiveness of what you're creating. And so it really is an engineering problem to some degree. In the writing process, you start off with your experience, right? Your life experience, the experiences you've seen in movies, read in books. And from that platform, you sort of have this inspiration, which like we talked about before, it's ambiguous where it comes from. But you develop that inspiration into an outline, um, similar to the way that you develop an idea in science into a research plan. You research the background of this, this novel or story that you're writing. You know, maybe you need to research, if you're writing about animals, you need to figure out what do these animals look like? How did they behave? What are they scared of? What hurts them? What do they need to survive? That sort of thing. Um, and in science, you do a literature review that's like background research for whatever uh, experiments you're conducting. And then you write your novel. And in science, you do your experiments. And after you write your novel, you got to reread that. And in science, maybe you look at the outcomes of the experiments. And maybe you change some things and reperform the experiments because things go wrong quite often. Um, same thing in writing. When you reread it, you're going to find maybe, oh, God, what was I thinking? You know, that sort of thing. Um, and so you rewrite it many, many times and you edit it. And in the end, you know, in science, you analyze data if you've finally done the experiment correctly and you draw conclusions from that. I'd say you could, you could consider that analogous to maybe um, analyzing the character arcs and tying up the themes of the novel. Um, and in the end, for both processes, you package it up and try to get it out there into the world, whether that's through publication or, you know, maybe, maybe you share it with friends if you're a writer and you get feedback on that. Like in science, you get feedback from reviewers. Um, in writing, if you have a published book, you get comments and you get emails and all sorts of things. And hopefully the idea is that you've, you've inspired the next generation of writers and researchers to, to use the ideas that you've um, developed and further develop them or come up with new ideas um, from your project. So really these interconnections between the two processes are very strong. And I often, like when I'm doing research, I think about my writing process actively. And when I'm doing writing, I think about my research process actively, um, I guess, in the hopes that they would synergize for me. Honestly, I think it's all really beautiful and it's at the heart of my philosophy as a person, I guess. <laughs> the areas of similarity you brought up are truly innovative in a sense because you are, I think, building connections like you bring in research into your writing experience, researching the uh, distinct qualities of the animals you use up in your novel or, you know, exploring the 
literature, the scientific literature, for example, on PubMed, on Research Direct too, <laughs> make sure that all your work is in check. And of course, in terms of impact and feedback from others, the, the same concepts or similar concepts apply. You use words, of course, as building blocks to create a sentence, a chapter, and then weave it all together to form a book. And in a lab, you, you start with a set of molecules and through the process of synthesis, you can get a larger one structured in order. And it's like putting the, together the puzzle pieces. Wow, yeah, that's a wonderful metaphor. Thank you. Well, your expansion in, inspired me to tap into to more of that field because I think science also allows that creative space to, to put the puzzle pieces together and Innovation, and I think there's there's a misconception here, is not always creating a whole new puzzle, but arranging the pieces you already have in a unique order. Yeah, absolutely. I love what you said there, everything. Uh, but most of all, the metaphor that you came up with, I really like that. I think that, you know, um, what I do in the lab with fabricating nanostructures is actually creating chain reactions that link these monomers into polymers, similar to the way that words link together. And maybe even once you get your words started, the process um, becomes quicker and more natural. Um, so I really like that metaphor. It's really sure like a chain reaction happening. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. On the educational side, with Mini Junk, you co-founded a unique educational platform, Buzz Online, driven by global youth leaders. And this comes in handy, especially in the midst of COVID, when we rely on remote learning. So how would you define what you do, your big picture goal? I would say that our big picture goal is really to connect global youth leaders with younger kids in a community um, where there's interdisciplinary learning and learning that's driven by passion as well as application. So to expand on that a little bit, um, we, I guess we want to demystify success um, for young people, at least early stage success, right? We, we want to empower younger kids, regardless of what environments or circumstances they might be in naturally um, to pursue projects that they're passionate about. And so a big element that we focus on is to have community support each other and to have them brainstorm ideas with each other and collaborate with each other. And our courses aren't really content-based, they're application-based. So we teach them some skills and then they apply that in their own project that they work on over the duration of the course. And oftentimes our courses are interdisciplinary as well. So for example, I'm teaching a science communication course because it's sort of intersection of like writing and science up my alley, you know? Um, and I'm having the students work on their own projects. So we have research projects, we have some students creating a newsletter. Um, we have students creating a Minecraft, scientific Minecraft server. We have students creating a 3D CAD city. I've been teaching them how to write abstracts and how to write research plans and do literature reviews. And they apply those 
in the context of their projects, which I think makes learning a lot more powerful. They're not just teaching theoretical stuff, but really、mm -hmm. skills that they are able to implement. And I know because we've talked about it earlier, but younger, like elementary school age students, are also on your platform, and、mm -hmm. their brains plasticity is just purely astonishing. So they're、yeah. soaking up the skills you, you teach them <laughs> like a sponge. Yeah, definitely. And I think a a big part of why we teach applications is because with the rise of the internet, right, you have access to knowledge. At the tip of your fingers, and so learning, memorizing, and regurgitating knowledge, like what we did in the standard education system, becomes less valuable as time progresses. And being able to actually apply that knowledge effectively、uh, becomes more and more valuable. Without a doubt, you are bringing in such a unique way of of teaching those. Distinct skills by bringing in together two subjects, just as you do in your scientific communication class. Now, wondering, perhaps people listening would like to apply to participate in one of your courses, but、mm -hmm. before going into the details of the how-to, what features make Buzz stand out? What would you say to the one who who considers joining your platform? I'd say a couple of things. You know, I know there's a lot of Online education going on right now, right, because of the COVID crisis, and also a lot of student organizations that that have risen to tutor kids and classes that they might be missing out on. And I'm a fan of all of those efforts,、um, but I think we're sort of targeting a different a different、um, need right now. We're targeting the need for a community because we have a lot of communication between our students. We we actually have this giant Discord server with with all of our students、um, in it, and we have a bunch of channels where they can talk about different things and share ideas and work together.、Um, and so I think that brings us closer together as not just teachers separated from students, but really、uh, young people together, you know, helping each other out. And then we also like to focus on. Unconventional classes and interdisciplinary ones. We don't really do, you know, classes that you could find at school. We're not a substitution for school. If we teach classes, it's generally going to be stuff that you can't find online, or that if you find online, maybe it's taught better by youth leaders. It's really about the experiences that we've had and also the perspectives that we have in、um, combining different fields. And then the third element that makes us unique is the fact that we use a project-based course model. And so, like I mentioned before, the students are really able to apply what they've learned instead of just remember it and maybe it fades over time. And a lot of these students are very passionate about their projects too. You know, they've created websites for their projects and everything. It, it honestly makes me really happy to see all this happen because it it wasn't. Uh, right off the bat, that it happened,、um, and it's, it's like a virtual initiative. There's no sort of external pressure that's keeping the students there, and so to see them very motivated and passionate about what they're doing is crazy to me. They're really able to truly bloom in that free space, and、mm -hmm. that they can truly pour into subjects that they have a passion for. 
And what I really like about the, the method or the structure you, you build this platform is that you focus on the three C's like comprehension, creation, and communication. So when <laughs> they are ready to show what they've been working on, you're hosting a virtual fair for the class as well, right? Yes, yes. Oh, that was definitely inspired by all of the virtual fairs that have popped up um, to replace science fairs that unfortunately got canceled this year but we we want to host virtual fairs and have the students show their work off maybe even live stream it on youtube for the public to see that's so cool if someone wants to join because i saw that you have a leadership class coming up um how can mm -hmm. a student reach you there are sign up links on the website which is buzzonline.org um but we also have a social media, uh, Instagram, which is, I think it's Buzz Online Official. And you can reach us through both of those, or um, you can reach us through WeChat groups and the Discord server if you have a friend who's already involved. Or you can just reach out to us individually, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm happy to talk to people on Instagram. My Instagram is alicekai2020. Yes, I'm going to include that in, in the bio. So okay, <laughs> your information is going to be out there and they can reach out to you. And of course, you're going to go on full official mode and include Buzz Online as well. Okay, awesome. We are moving into an inspirational part to wrap the episode up. And being an accomplished youth leader, obviously, what is a central message that you want to give to young people? A central message to give to young people. This is a difficult one because, like I mentioned before, sometimes it's hard to tell whether or not young people have to go through a period of difficulty. Um, and I guess the opposite of the things that they might come to value in order to come to value these things even more once they've had that epiphany. But I'd say the advice I have right now is to stay true to yourself. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I've, I've done a lot of different things in my life, um, but not all of it was great and inspirational and uh, came naturally to me like maybe my writing did. When I was in junior high and in elementary school, middle school as well, um, my father used to force me to do a lot of math. Um, I'm sure a lot of Asian Americans out there can relate to this stereotype. But yeah, uh, I used to practice math for competitions a lot. And um, it was a very mind-numbing business to me because these competitions were structured in a way that was almost regurgitative in nature. You know, you could memorize methods and then you applied those methods uh, very straightforwardly. And so it all culminated when I was in seventh grade. Um, and there's this competition called the ACTM. It's like a statewide competition for high school math. And I was ahead a couple of years, so I went to that competition and won first place at state, and I was getting congratulations from everyone. And I remember distinctly on the car ride home um, with my little plastic gold trophy sitting next to me, I was very miserable. And so miserable that I started writing on my computer. You know, I was 
like a little diary entry about how I hated math and I never wanted to do it again. And I wish I didn't, you know, I, I wish I didn't spend so much time on it. And so the reason I bring up this story, as sad as it might sound, is because I think that mathematics has a, like awesome things to offer. I've talked to people who have worked in mathematics and math research, and the stories that they tell are very, very interesting. Sometimes I think when you're forced to do things at a young age, it stunts that passion that you might have otherwise developed. Um, and so that's why I think it's important to stay true to the things that you want to do, because even if it seems like such a long and impossible road ahead, you'll get there. I promise you, you'll get there. Like when, when I was writing, you know, I didn't get much encouragement from my family because my parents are both engineers and they thought, what is she doing? Writing is useless, right? But I've come to apply writing concepts in a lot of different areas of my life. It's, it's the passion that really keeps people going. Yes, because even if people see you from an external point of view as an accomplished person, for example, golden award-winning mathlete, you you might feel that you are not truly in the place you're designed to be. So there's a difference between having that thing as your mission or feel it as a misery. I think that it's such a central message that even though you, you might feel excluded in a way, even in familiar settings, um, you, you have to tap into what you're truly passionate about. I also want to put a qualifier on that because I think that Passion is a word that's thrown around a lot in, in media nowadays, and sometimes it loses its meaning and it gets blurred. And to be honest, you know, passion is not one thing that's very concrete and discernible. Sometimes you acquire passion over time as you do something. You know, it's hard for, for kids to feel like, oh, I have to have passion for something. I don't know what I'm passionate about because I haven't started on anything. And so, like take the message with a grain of salt, right? Just pay attention to how you're feeling over time. It's not one decision that you make. It's it's a decision over time that you make to follow your heart where it directs you. Yes, you, you have to take a holistic review and then through trial and error, kind of decipher whether it fits you or not. And I can also resonate with having well, those difficult conversation mm -hmm. on what profession you're going to choose. I was faced with, you know, the question that you're going to be either a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. And I went with option D. <laughs> I feel what you've been uh, going through, and it's really hard to stand your ground uh, when, when someone is trying to tell you to choose another path. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think... My advantage is that I'm very rebellious in nature, and so I, I'm not afraid um, to not do what the system or, or authority figures tell me to do, but it is a very painful thing, especially in the conflict that it causes, and I've written about this too. I've written a piece called Solving for Father that highlights, I guess, the generational conflict cultural conflict and also the professional conflict um, between his want for me to pursue math and my want to pursue creative writing. Um, and honestly, I think 
I'm all the stronger for that conflict. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have to have gone through the process of fighting for what I'm passionate about uh, because it just solidifies that much more. And there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with parents wanting people wanting their kids to pursue math. I, I think it's I think it's great to um, to have ambitions for your kids. It's just a matter of extent. Yes, absolutely. Just to define the borders. I think that the fact that Rebel is your middle name is a positive thing. It truly reflects on the fact that you are challenging the status quo. <laughs> and that is a generational difference as well, I think, because baby boomers mm -hmm. or Gen X um, are different in a way because they are thinking more about traditional values and the things that have been already set before us. Mm -hmm. um, but Gen Z is more about, you know, making an impact and being your unique individual. So th there's yeah. a tension. And I think we're also lucky to be able to think in that way because we haven't had to deal with, you know, great catastrophes, global catastrophes, I mean, until now, but um, global catastrophes in our lifetime, like world wars and whatnot. Um, and so that's that might be part of the reason that we challenge traditional systems, we challenge order, while our parents might want want order and security for us. That is so true. Yes, because they had everything but stability mm -hmm. during those times. That is a very valid connection between the two and the underlying reasons of how we might react to the same thing in a, in a different way. Another if question, if you could have a dinner guest living today or in the past, who would you choose and why? So a dinner guest living today or in the past... I'm tempted to say myself, either my younger self or my future self. I know it's it's probably a, an overly used answer, but the reason I say this is because I think that there's no better person you can learn from um, than yourself. Um, obviously, people have a lot of different things to offer, but I think a precursor to understanding the rest of the world is to understand yourself and the way that you function. And I would really like to talk to uh, my younger self. I'm scared to talk to my future self because, you know, the, the way these things work, I don't want to see where I end up because what if it's not where I want to end up? Um, but I'd like, to, I'd like to see what young Alice was thinking. A lot of it's reflected and I'm, I'm grateful to have been able to write a lot of my experiences down so that I don't forget them. But also, just to talk in person with young Alice might be interesting. <laughs> I actually have never had this question answered in this way before. Really? Really. We've had Elon Musk several times <laughs> oh. <laughs> as a dinner guest, you know, Marie Curie, but never in this way. I like the fact that you said that you also journal your thoughts so that you are able to, in my sound beard, meet young Alice through your writings. And one of the things that popped into my head that I was told by my Hungarian teacher in high school that speech or talking is temporary, but writing is permanent. And I mm -hmm. think that truly applies here. Definitely. It's a very great record for your young experiences. And because, also because writing is a reflection of what goes on in your mind. 
of course, as you work on the craft and edit and revise, it becomes further and further away from your initial thoughts. But I think at that young age, the raw things that I wrote in my journal entries really reflected what was going on with me mentally, which is something that you can't capture in pictures um, or just, I guess, records of events. So true. Those internal feelings and emotions had to be poured on the pages. It's rather cringy sometimes <laughs> to look back on like crushes and ooh, all of that stuff. Popularity games. Very cringy. Yes, I also journaled when I was younger and, you know, reading that back, all the high school drama intensified. <laughs> Pure crazy. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, too, I look back on what I write and sometimes I'm like, wow, this is this is insightful. I was a very insightful young child, you know, so it's like this combination of cringiness and insight. <laughs> In terms of gastronomy, there is this term, the bliss point. So mm -hmm. it's the combination of sweetness and savory taste. So when you think about, you know, savory sweet, it's so good that you want to eat more. Uh, because yeah. of the combination of the positive and negative aspects, writing has hit a bliss point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very interesting metaphor. I really love all of your metaphors. I think it also applies to, you know, experiences in real life. If you're always happy all the time as a child, which I'm sure nobody is. It's just a boring experience. You know, contrast makes things the, what they are. Um, without, I guess there's the saying, without um, sadness, you can't have happiness. Without darkness, you can't have light, all of that stuff. So it's a combination. Yes. Well, like having a homogeneous picture is not much of an action. You need, you need splashes <laughs> yeah. and borders and everything thrown in between. <laughs> now we are moving into the this or that game. Um, and of course, as the name suggests, you got to choose either or. Okay. So the first one, I wanted to have this tailored for you. Hardcover or paperback? Hmm. Um, personally, I read paperback because it's cheaper. Yeah, I'd say paperback. I'm not a big fan of, of hardcover unless the cover is very well designed. Yeah, I think it's also easier to read and truly yeah. digest the book. But there is a nostalgic, um, I guess, sense with hardcover you open it up and the book kind of creaks a little bit <laughs> that's true in terms of books as well meet your favorite author or your favorite character of any book Ooh, that's a good one. Oh goodness I, I guess it sort of depends on the context like can I ask you how long am I able to meet them for well we are not restricted in their part so let's say spend a day together spend a day together okay um the, in that case character <laughs> because um I don't know I, I feel like I'd need more time with the author to really get to know them but I can sort of prod at the character sort of as if they were they were a robot and I was testing their limits because obviously um the characters are not fully fully formed by any means they're nowhere close to being real people and so I can I can play around with that Kind of sounds cruel now that I think about it, but... <laughs> so it's more like a research experiment, right? 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> and which character would it be? Personally, I really like the character um, from the book Coraline. It's the little girl with with the uh, um, parents who have button eyes in the other worlds. Um, it's a very short book, and so that's why I might want to prod around and see what the limits of her character are. But she sort of exemplifies a, a coming-of-age story. She lives in this very weird world, but she's also a normal kid in a lot of ways. So a character from a fantasy setting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it would be really interesting to see how she interacts with the real world. Yeah. <laughs> and the next one is Nutella or peanut butter? Uh, peanut butter, because I'm allergic to hazelnuts. Me too. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> high five, virtual high five. Virtual high five through the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Countryside or city? Is, is this like a question of where I want to live or is it just... Like in general... City. City has more people, and people are interesting. Like an observer, a writer, you, you gotta meet with your next characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last one is traveling by plane or by boat. I know it's a theoretical or hypothetical situation right now, but still. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've actually never traveled by boat, so I'd have to go with traveling by boat. Okay, so gaining new experiences. The closing question is, now, we can do it in separate ways or bringing the two together, but essentially, what does writing um, slash research mean to you? I guess I'll address it in separate ways and then address the combination of the two. So writing means a lot of things to me. I think um, self-discovery and creation or generation of content into the world is are the two elements that are most important um writing is is almost power and I, I don't mean that in a malicious way but writing is the power to make something come to life um all by yourself to be honest you don't need much for writing all you need is a computer or even just a notepad and a pen um, and your thoughts, and you can create things with that, and I think that's very, very powerful. And in terms of research, it means um, discovering things in a very systematic way that is rigorous but meaningful in the end because of its rigor. It's, it's different from writing because you have more restrictions uh, in a lot of ways, but I think in relation to writing, the restrictions are what produce um, the creativity and the content and the great discoveries. So this is sort of a tangent, but sorry, I keep on going on tangents. But in writing, you also have different structures and formats. Um, and even though the idea of writing is that you can create anything out of virtually nothing, um, I think that when you have these different restrictions, like how many words you need to have in a line of poetry or what the rhythm should be, it also fuels your creativity. So I, I can definitely see that as another interconnection. And then the intersection of research and writing to me is 
probably the future. I wouldn't say writing specifically, but the intersection of research um, and the humanities is the future because you can see that everywhere, you know, as, as tech is developing, more and more artists are adopting tech. And then in terms of research, people are looking at more creative methods and they're also collaborating with others um, in order to communicate the essence of science and inspire the new generation of scientists. And um, it, it started a while back, I think in the 1960s, there was like this uh, event called Nine Evenings Theater and Engineering. And it was like the first instance, large scale instance where engineers and people from the humanities were collaborating together. But since then, there's been a ton of collaboration. People have been making art out of data They've been making art out of algorithms. They've been using algorithms um, in order to create music, artificial music, artificial paintings, even artificial stories. So that's really where I see the future going is this synergy uh, between, I guess, humanities and sciences. And I want to be at the forefront of that, of that effort um, studying creative AI. You brought up contemporary and relevant outpourings such as digital art or creative AI that you want to explore more as your future career or mission. You've expanded on that restrictions can reinforce creativity. I can experience that because my mom is uh, teaching art. She told me that in order to produce great masterpieces, students need those kind of borders within the classroom to fully experience their creativity because without no borders they're gonna be lost you don't need to have an exact plan laid out but some strategies that they can apply and i think it um, really reflects your answer on how in in terms of science those factors or those external restrictions can help you or into the more creative process part. Yeah, definitely. And I think some of this is counterintuitive with the stereotypes that we have. You know, you have the stereotype of writing as, or of creativity as something that's just purely from the imagination, but that's oftentimes not the case. Oftentimes creativity happens in very strange places, um, like problem solving, entrepreneurship, how you approach something involves a high degree of creativity. Those restrictions, like you were saying, are the skeleton upon which you can, uh, you, you can bring this degree of inspiration. Um, and in terms of research as well, we, we might have this stereotype that researchers know what they're doing from the beginning. You know, it's a very strict and rigorous method. But to be honest, like a lot of it's trial and error and exploration and sometimes groping in the dark along the ropes that you've laid out for yourself as your research plan. Uh, on the skeleton metaphor, it's really true that you you got to have that structural element. Just as you, we've touched on writing, that you have to leave out all the extra stuff that you don't need to get really the core of the story. I want to thank you for expanding on all the valuable advice you've given and for exploring the intricate connections between science and more creative outlets 
such as writing and um, talking about your future novels that I think with the listeners I can confidently say we're all excited for. So <laughs> thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for talking with me. I really love the metaphors <laughs> that you came up with. And I'm really honored to be on here along with all of the other great researchers, great minds, great thinkers and creators. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. 